2: If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds.
3: Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin tomboy x just dropped their pride 24 collection obsessively fit tested for all-day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6x visit tomboyx.com
0: Hello and welcome to Food Stuff. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum and this is our episode of Food Stuff in space, space. Those yep. really high tech uh uh mm-hmm. sound effects. Right Only there. the best for you right. guys. <laughs>
1: So there's a lot to talk about here. Yeah. Let's get right into it. What is space food? It's food for space travel.
0: Yeah. And as we all learned in the Simpsons episode, Deep Space Homer, in which Homer Simpson lets potato chips and then ants loose in a spacecraft, you've got to take some special considerations before you... Take food into space Uh, because the equipment up there is, you know, kind of delicate and any kind of loose particles or drops of liquid could just seriously muck things up in the near zero gravity of orbit. And yes, I said near zero gravity. It's not really zero gravity. There's always gravity kind of kicking around. So a technical point, but an important one because of science. Yes. So you've got to give astronauts food that's well-contained. Uh uh-huh, You know, like t- tortillas instead of bread to reduce crumbs, uh, things that are sticky or wet enough to not float out of their containers or, or off of a utensil, uh, stuff like-, like scrambled eggs or stews or oatmeal seasoned with salt that's dissolved in water and pepper that's suspended in oil. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's also got to be shelf-stable because refrigeration systems for food are generally considered too uh, bulky or difficult or energy-consuming. It helps if the food is dehydrated and therefore lightweight because the cost per pound of sending stuff into space is, uh, well, hefty. Yeah. Pun Pre- intended. Oh, <laughs> uh, and uh, modernly, most water in space comes from reclaimed recycled sources instead of from supply runs. Also, you have to make really like really sure that none of the the packaging or utensils or heating elements involved with your food might create a spark that could start a fire, uh and they won't puncture any equipment. Don't want any of that. Uh and furthermore, the food has to be, you know, like not so boring or so gross that the highly trained scientists and flight specialists wind up starving themselves. Yeah, you don't want that either. For travel to the International
1: Space Station five months before a mission, crew members do a taste test of 20 to 30 things, ranking taste, texture, smell, appearance, and color on a scale of 1 to Mm 9. And to make the cut, a food needs to score a 6 or higher.
0: They can request some of their favorite foods from home, and researchers will do what they can to comply. Uh, For example, for Canadian Chris Hadfield's stay, uh, they added to the menu duck roulette. Ooh. And uh, candied smoked salmon, wild caught even, and uh, maple syrup cream cookies.
1: Well, that sounds delicious. Mm-hmm. Dietitians have to balance the need of space as well. For instance, astronauts need calcium and vitamin D for good bone health in a weightless, almost weightless environment. <sighs> mm-hmm. But um, and less iron because you're making less red blood cells in space. Space travel and the need to feed astronauts in space has fueled a lot of food and food processing innovations. Like thermostabilized are heat processed foods that can come in cans or pouches. Rehydratable foods like soups or casseroles and
0: irradiated meat. The, the, the irradiated means that it won't spoil, not that it's like Godzilla. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought at first. <laughs> that
1: would not be good. No,
0: no. Uh, it generally takes about 20 to 30 minutes to prepare a, to like reconstitute and heat a space meal. Um and a lot of these innovations like freeze-dried food went on to become available to your, you know, everyday non-astronaut consumer. Like Lauren and I, we could we could probably do a whole other episode on like the technological innovations from the space program that have benefited the food industry earthside. Yeah, but that day is not today. Nope, today is space side. I yeah. don't know if
1: that makes <laughs> sense, but we're moving on with it. Uh-huh. Current astronauts on the International Space Station eat three meals and one snack per day. The Johnson Space Center's Space Food Systems Laboratory comes up with these menus for American astronauts, while the Russian Federal Space Agency does the same for its cosmonauts. Most of these meals are the Just Add Water variety, similar to the military's MREs. Some packaged foods a lot of us are more familiar with make their way up to space as well. Like almonds or drinks the straws a la Capri Sun, which is what I thought of anyway. Um, <laughs> food packages come with Velcro so astronauts can stick to the Velcro straps on the galley table and it won't float away. That'd be sad.
0: It, it would. I would be so cross with my snack if it floated away. I oh, my how, goodness. Oh. Oh uh astronauts uh and cosmonauts and etc uh, also do sometimes receive fresh fruit and vegetables from supply missions and care packages from family um and these are serious treats uh it, it's hard to to nail down a finite cost of sending stuff to space because there's so many factors that go into it but you you can divide the cost of each launch by the weight of the cargo each craft can carry to get a kind of rough idea uh so so you know the the, the Cost will differ depending on the type of craft being used, but the low end of the range is $9,100 per pound of yeah. food. Whoa, that's the low end, huh? Yeah, yeah. And, and a pound equals about half a kilo, um, for, for our metric friends. Um, the, the high end, the high end is over $43,000 per pound. Oh boy. Which means that sending a single fresh lemon to space can cost about 10 grand. I would enjoy that lemon so much, though. Yeah. <laughs> right?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh cocktails in space. Ooh, actually, we've got a segment on that later. Um, the total food eaten by astronauts? Yes. On average, each gets about 3.8 pounds, including the packaging. They probably don't eat the packaging per day, um, which equals out to about uh, is somewhere between 1,900 and 3,200 calories, depending on the person's specific needs. Mm-hmm. And the food items that have
1: been sent to space the most are M&Ms, with over 130 trips since 1981, but they call them chocolate-coated candies, I think. Mm -hmm. Something like that. Followed by a high-tech food tray that could heat itself and came with a collapsible bottle called the Skylab Food System. And coming in third is the iconic astronaut-powdered drink mix, Tang. Ah. Yes. Yes. Courtesy of the dry cabin, decreased sense of smell, and lesser atmosphere space, human ability to taste is lowered by 30% in space, which is why foods loaded up with spices have been, and are, some of the most popular.
0: Apparently shrimp cocktail is just where it's I at. I know, that kept coming up. Yeah. Uh, but part of what's going on here, not with the shrimp cocktail, but with your, your face, is that, uh, in near zero gravity, that the blood that your heart is trained to work really hard at pulling up from your legs tends to kind of accumulate in your head more than it usually would, uh, which means your sinuses get kind of swollen and your nose stuffs up. Uh, another part is that scents don't waft the same way in near zero gravity. Uh, also, freeze drying foods can destroy some of the compounds that create scent and flavor, so you've got that to contend with. Yeah. And of course, you've got to have water. As of 2015, the ISS, uh, International Space Station, if we haven't said that previously, I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, carried about 2,000 liters, a little bit over 500 gallons of water, but also reclaimed and recycled as much as 93% of the water used by its astronauts. Uh, the station collects the condensation from breath and sweat and the runoff from showers. And on the American side of the station, they even collect urine from astronauts and lab animals. Um, that all gets filtered so that it winds up being cleaner than most of what we drink here on Earth. Uh, one thing that the Russians and Americans have classically disagreed on is how best to filter all of that recycled water. And they flat out refuse the urine thing. They're like, nope, that's gross, you're terrible. Um, but, uh, but, but, but the filtering gets done. And of course, uh, water isn't the only thing available to drink on the space station. Uh, stuff like coffee, tea, and juice usually come in powdered form and then are reconstituted.
1: The ever important coffee.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, there's a whole bit about that later, too. Uh, and we're going to get to that you know, kind of soon. But first, let's get to a quick break for a word from our sponsor.
2: And I look forward to getting on the air. I look
4: forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast.
1: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Yes, thank you. So let's talk a bit about the origins of space food. Space food goes back about as far as the U.S. and Russian space programs of the 1960s. Oh, we're not going to talk about ancient
0: Romans? Pliny didn't have anything to say about it? I know. Pliny, come on. Shh. We're not going to mention Christopher Columbus this whole episode, except I just did. Oh, oh yeah. Girl. Well, okay.
1: Obviously, if you're going to send people to space for more than a few hours, you're going to have to feed them somehow. In addressing this, NASA developed a program called the Hazard Analysis Critical Control Point, or HACCP. And the purpose of HACCP was to prevent food safety issues by employing a seven-step science-based system when preparing food. And this system is now a requirement in the
0: U.S. for all meat,
1: seafood, poultry, and juice processors, by the way.
0: The first meal ever eaten in space was by the Soviet cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin in April of 1961, and it consisted of a tube of beef and liver paste and then a tube of chocolate sauce for dessert. You've got to have dessert. You do. Even in space. On mm-hmm.
1: um, the Friendship 7 in 1962, John Glenn became the first American to eat in space, and the historic first food he consumed was applesauce. Ah. Oh. Yeah. And pureed beef and vegetables, both squeezed appetizingly out of aluminum tubes. Sort of like a little toothpaste tube, sure. Yep. Sucked up through a straw that fit into a porthole in Glenn's helmet. A 1962 New York Times article documented what seems like every detail extensively, (laughs) including the exact time he started in on his first tube, and the food was described thusly. His two-course meal consisted of a beef-vegetable mixture and applesauce. His squeeze food was semi-solid, which means it was pretty much like baby food, but with adult seasoning, okay, and sugar added. And with the flexible tube and nozzle, Colonel Glenn did not run into the exasperation of ketchup bottleneck. For who among us has not struggled with ketchup (laughs) bottleneck? (laughs) The aluminum tube was developed by the American Can Company container scientist.
0: Uh, these, these tubes have been developed by the company in the 1940s for World War II fighter pilots. All this stuff was and would continue to be based on uh, military survival rations. Uh, it was kind of crazy frontier science, though. One of Glenn's missions while he was up there was to see whether he could sip water. What if he couldn't have? He, he could. But what if he couldn't? It would have been a sad day for space travel. Oh my goodness. I'm telling you. Um, he, his flight also marked the first leftovers in space, a tube of spaghetti that he chose not to eat.
1: I wonder why. I don't know. Mm-hmm. A year earlier in 1961, Whirlpool, Whirlpool Corporation, yes, that Whirlpool <laughs> showed off their space kitchen at a convention. This thing was a compact 10-by-7.5-foot cylinder, or 3-by-2 meters, and it had a refrigerator, free- freezer, disposal, and water system made to last the food and drink needs for 14-day mission. They fulfilled over 300 contracts with their space kitchen from 1957
0: to 1973.
1: Okay. Yeah. hmm In 1963, a scientist named Sidney A. Schwartz came up with an idea of making space capsules, either entirely or partly, out of edible materials. Mm
0: -hmm. Okay, Willy
1: Wonka scene. All right. Yep. It was a spacecraft made out of food. A Newsweek article out of that year purports that he came up with a recipe of $5 worth of groceries like cornstarch, flour, banana flakes, hominy, powdered milk, that could be baked up, in a four hundred degree hydraulic press with three thousand pounds of pressure. Ooh. And the result was a slab that didn't splinter when drilled into or sawed and for space travel, Schwartz suggested it as a cheap material for things like cabinets. And yes, you could eat it. You um you just added water after you've ground up the the slab into powder. Schwartz claimed it tasted like banana topped cereal. Interesting idea. I like the creativity. Oh,
0: sure. That's great.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, moving on from edible (laughs) spacecraft. (laughs) That's the ultimate space food. Uh, For the mid-60s Gemini, Apollo, and Mercury missions, astronauts were given dehydrated and freeze-dried cubes along with the tubes. These bite-sized cubes were meant to provide an eating experience closer to Earth's, and they came coated in an edible film that kept crumbs, those troublesome crumbs, from floating about and mucking things up. And they came with nozzles at the edge of the pouch and instructions on how much water you needed to rehydrate. Ah. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. A 1964
1: Los Angeles Times article detailed some of the complications and necessities for designing food for space. No carbonation because at low pressure and high altitudes, gas expands in your belly. The whole crumb issue, Mm -hmm. getting the right balance of nutrients. The general goal at the time was 17% protein, 51% carbohydrates, and 32% fat. And 99% of the moisture was removed to reduce weight and prevent spoilage. There was also transport and space constraints along with the balancing of the psychological need to eat, as the article described it. That's one of the reasons the idea of food in pill form was rejected.
0: Mhm.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the food didn't taste great. Uh the first astronaut to try the freeze-dried stuff, Gordon Cooper, only ate 696 of his 2369 calories for a 34-hour mission. Ooh. And all the astronauts of the 1963 Mercury mission returned with uneaten food.
0: The Soviets developed a wider menu a little bit more quickly than Americans, although they stuck largely with the tube delivery system. Um, they expanded to 30 options. 30 of tubes in those early years. And, and also offered, um, some other, some other actual kind of solid food, uh, rolls that could be eaten in a single bite, uh, pieces of salami and drinks like berry juice and beet juice. Mm. (laughs) Hmm. By the time the 1965 Gemini mission
1: rolled around, they were given more variety, the Americans anyway, from that same Los Angeles Times article. The 2,500-calorie, four-meal-a-day sample menu might look something like this. Meal A, sugar-frosted flakes, sausage patties, toast squares, and orange grapefruit juice. Hmm. Meal B, tuna salad, cheese sandwiches, apricot pudding, and grape juice. Meal C: Beef pot roast, carrots, and cream sauce; toasted bread cubes, pineapple cubes, (laughs) and tea. And Meal D: Potato soup, chicken bits, toast squares, (laughs) applesauce, brownies, and grapefruit juice. Hmm, grapefruit juice there twice, huh? It's popular. The astronauts injected the pouches with water from the water gun, kneaded it to the proper consistency, cut open the pouch to get to a plastic tube for squeezing out the food, and then, once finished, sealed it again with a tablet inside that prevented rotting. You really didn't want that. Nope. Each meal came with two sticks of gum and a towel soaked with an antibacterial substance. Ah, Yes. These packages could last two years at least. And then... John W. Young snuck a corned beef sandwich <laughs> aboard the Gemini 3 in 1965. Uh, first sandwich in space. Yep. And it necessitated a mandatory astronaut inventory before each mission.
0: Man, NASA was so displeased about it. They really were. <laughs> they, they were not entertained. Nope.
1: The Apollo missions, um, the first ones to land on the moon, saw even greater leaps in terms of taste of space food. The new space, Amenity Hot Water, <laughs> made rehydrating foods easier and faster and it improved
0: the flavor. Sure. Hot, hot foods are hot sometimes. Yeah, which yeah. is
1: awesome. Mm-hmm. Another innovation was the spoon bowl, which is what it sounds like. The food stuck to the spoon thanks to the moisture left over from rehydration. That's cool. Wet packs, aluminum or plastic pouches that kept food moist and didn't require rehydration, were introduced as well. And then, (laughs) Apollo 7. This is the mission with perhaps one of the most famous space foods, astronaut ice cream. Freeze-dried ice cream? Yes. Yes! It was a crew request of the 1968 mission, but freeze-dried ice cream only made one trip to space. Why? Hmm. Because most of the crew didn't like it. The texture was all wrong. The taste kind of blah. They said it was like styrofoam.
0: I mean, it was. It wasn't like ice cream at all, but... It's great. Oh, as, as a kid, I loved this stuff so much. I I haven't had it in like decades, but I
1: I'm not sure I've ever had it. Is Dippin' Dots? Is that what that is? No. Okay. Well, then that I that's what I've had. I haven't had the. I've seen it. It's like a block of Neapolitan. Yeah. Ice cream. I haven't oh, had. That. Okay. We'll have to get some. We'll okay. See. All right. I'm down. Yes. The crew of Apollo 8 enjoyed thermostabilized turkey and gravy, cranberry sauce, and fruitcake on Christmas Eve 1968. As they orbited around the moon, what a great, great view while you have your turkey. Your thermostabilized turkey.
0: turkey. (laughs) All the comforts of home. I know.
1: The beloved bacon square was the first food item consumed on the moon in 1969. And moon diets had to be high in potassium to prevent any irregularities in heart rhythm. I don't know if the bacon cube helped with that, but perhaps it did. <laughs> the first Russian cosmonauts had food options harkening back to the first American missions. Mostly, like Lauren said, out of tubes, Mr. Dried. On later missions in 1971, a Russian cosmonaut celebrated the birthday of Viktor Patsayev with tubes of prune paste and a smuggled lemon and onion. Ooh, what a birthday. More smuggling. I know. Apollo 11 introduced a contingency feeding system of liquids eaten through an opening in the helmet should the cabin become depressurized. Ah. Yeah. A canteen that granted astronauts, um, of drinking water, I wrote, granted of drinking water, <laughs> <laughs> um, while working on the moon was added to the spacesuits for Apollo 13 and Apollo 15 moonwalkers were given apricot bars to tide them over while on the lunar surface. This was also the first mission that had no leftovers, so props to them before Apollo. The average weight loss per astronaut was three to four pounds, sometimes up to ten pounds
0: although that doesn't just have to do with with uh lack of food intake, of course the right. uh, uh, muscle wasting they hadn't quite figured out how to how to combat that or even what was going on at that point yet um mm-hmm. As of 1969, though, NASA's space food still left a little bit of something to be desired. Um, after living on Apollo program food for three days, NASA spacecraft project manager Don Arabian reported that he had, quote, lost the will to live. Oof. And that the sausage patties tasted like granulated rubber.
1: That doesn't sound like something I would enjoy either. Mm.
0: But more innovations were coming.
1: Yes. The next big thing in space food occurred with the 1973 Skylab mission, which came with a designated dining area so astronauts could sit down, thanks to foot straps, at a Uh table and eat. And with the help of solar-powered cells, Skylab was the first to have a freezer and refrigeration. This meant more choice for the astronauts. 72 more choices, in fact. Ah. Warming trays debuted on this mission, too. These trays could be attached via Velcro to the astronaut's lap or to the wall, and they allowed for eating several things at once. Without the tray, an opened pouch had to be finished off before you could open another one. Ah. Astronauts could even design their own menu, as long as it met the requirements of a dietitian. and liquid salt and pepper were introduced on this mission. The standard menu cycled every seven days, and setting up a meal at this time took 20 to 30 minutes. Skylab also had um, a pantry with an extra 2,100 calories for two days for each person in the case of bad weather or another event that unexpectedly extended the mission. There's also a backup with enough food to last the crew for three weeks called the Safe Haven System.
0: During the American-Soviet mission of 1975, astronauts ate things like jellied beef tongue, borscht, and caviar. Ooh. <laughs> and then in 1985, um, a Mexican payload specialist by the name of Vivaldo Nerivela introduced a serious innovation to his fellow NASA space shuttle astronauts, the flour tortilla. What? After he requested them for his mission and they were a hit with the other astronauts, NASA set to developing a more long-lasting version of the tortilla, you know, so things could be shelf-stable for a few months. Um, they wound up using tortillas from a manufacturer that sells to Taco Bell, huh. which had come out with a 12-month shelf-stable product in the 1990s. Um, though they say that they do use fresh tortillas for short missions. Astronaut Sandra Magnus wrote in 2008, I cannot think of anything that cannot be put on a tortilla or has not been put on a tortilla. You really want to be swimming in tortillas for your whole increment. Wow. Passionate feelings about tortillas in space. I understand.
1: As the duration of missions lengthened, new packaging was developed. A trash compactor was developed. Ooh. Yeah, in 1991, the galley was redesigned and the electronics updated. Both the weight and volume were reduced.
0: Coca-Cola experimented with ways to get the perfect carbonated beverage in space despite that whole weird gas expansion thing um on space shuttle missions in the 80s and 90s sending space cans and a soda fountain they uh they haven't quite got it right yet though the the carbon dioxide bubbles and stuff like sodas mixed randomly with the surrounding liquid when it's in space uh meaning that they're usually more like foam than they are drink and Unfortunately, even if you can get it right and, you know, like, drink it, uh, carbonation really isn't cool in near-zero gravity. Um on, on Earth, gravity draws the liquid in a Coke or, you know, like a beer or whatever to the bottom of your stomach, while the carbon dioxide gases will rise to the top and come out in burps. In in low gravity, though, the, the liquid and the air mix, and your burps come out wet. Oh... Or the gases pass into your digestive system, which might cause adverse effects. Neither of which, I'm not even sure which one I want less. I'll take neither.
1: Yes. Thank you. Neither for the win. <laughs> Nowadays, the category of space food has expanded so much from pureed paste squeezed from tubes. Mm-hmm. For each six months spent on ISS, crew members get to choose nine preference containers – I like the sound of that (laughs) – from a main menu of over 200 items. Those items run the gambit from Japanese takeout, Swedish meatballs, tortillas, space kimchi, and the ever-popular shrimp cocktail. NASA has 60 thermostabilized foods and 50 freeze-dried products under their belt. And famous chefs like Emeril Lagasse have helped create some space food recipes – On holidays, crew is allowed special requests, and they get special treat packages sent by friends or families called Psychological Support Kits. Mm -hmm. Charles Simeone paid $60 for two visits to the ISS in 2006, 2007. He's a rich software guy, FYI. And he brought with him duck breast, quail, and simolina cake prepared by Alain Ducasse. That's probably the fanciest meal consumed in space to date. And an unmanned resupply rocket carrying 1,600 pounds of equipment and 1,360 pounds of food (laughs) exploded in October of 2014. Oh, goodness. Yeah, that kind of hurt my heart when I read it.
0: Yeah, um in 2015, the first Italian woman to go to space, uh, Samantha Christopher Cristoforetti, drank the first legit space espresso Ooh. on the ISS. Um the machine was a joint experiment by the Italian Space Agency, engineering firm Agri- Agrotech, yes, and a uh, coffee company Lavazza. The project took two years to complete. Of course. It can also make hot tea and consomme. Um, but, but even though the, the system is way different than earthbound machines, you can even get a waft of coffee scent from your cup or the uh, pouch. The, the pouch is designed to emit odor when you insert your straw. That
1: sounds gross, but I bet it's lovely. It's just a weird way to think about it. Sure. The pouch emits odor.
0: And with that, uh, we do have some more for you, uh, including booze in space. Has it been there? Of course it has. Uh, But first, we're going to take another quick break for a word from our sponsor.
2: Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach!
0: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Okay, so, booze in space. Obviously, you don't want a bunch of astronauts floating around drunk while they're supposed to be, you know, sciencing and, like, staying alive. Uh, but, of course, there's been booze in space. Of course. Um, Russian cosmonauts had cognac in their rations during the early days of the space age. Um, uh, one reported that their doctors had recommended it. Uh, quote, we, we used, uh, we used it to stimulate our immune system and on the whole to keep our organisms in tone. In tone? Mm-hmm. Hmm. The first liquid poured and perhaps consumed on the moon was actually wine. Uh, Buzz Aldrin, who was an elder at his Presbyterian church, uh, arranged to take communion on the Sunday that he and Neil Armstrong landed on the moon. Uh, before they left the lunar module, he took the wine and bread and radioed a message back to Earth. Uh, it wound up not being broadcast due to some PR trouble that NASA was having regarding separation of church and state. Um But what he said was, I would like to request a few moments of silence and to invite each person listening in wherever and whomever they may be to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or her own way. Which I think is lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, In the early seventies with the Skylab overhaul of the NASA menu, food researchers tried their darndest to include wine with their menu offerings, a four ounce ration every four days they settled on sherry because uh as it's already been heated during production they figured it would be the least damaged by the uh, space packaging process uh but the plan went seriously sideways uh f- first of all when public when the public got wind of the idea um some some people got really upset they they didn't like the the concept of astronauts these these you know these all-american heroes that our children are watching uh they didn't like the thought of them drinking Secondly, when NASA tested the sherry on a low gravity plane, um, let me, let me quote Charles Borland, a a space food engineer. The odors released by the wine combined with the residual smell of years worth of people getting sick on the plane had an unplanned effect on the crew. Many grabbed for their barf bags. Oh, no. (laughs) The sherry was not sent to space. No. NASA would later uh outlaw any drinking in space from its astronauts. And the official ISS statement on Booze in space is that because alcohol is a volatile compound, uh, astronauts drinking could muss up their uh water recycling program. Oh, yeah. Mm. Mm. But that does not preclude alcohol from being used experimentally. One microbiology project out of the University of Colorado, through NASA's space product development, brewed a wee batch of beer in space. Huh. Its yeast cell count was kind of low, and there was more of uh, one of the yeast's proteins than usual, though the researchers aren't sure why. That's interesting. More, They, they think it might be like a stress uh, response uh, protein. Okay. The yeast were oh. like, oh. I know, right? Oh. Now poor. I'm
1: feeling something for yeast. This is interesting. <laughs> huh.
0: A whiskey maker, um Ardbeg, sent a few vials of Scotch whiskey distillate plus oak shaving uh oak oak cask shavings up to the ISS to see how microgravity would affect the flavors pulled from barrels during aging. Uh, and yes, the shavings part is unusual. Uh don't worry, they also kept a few vials on Earth as a control. Near-zero gravity seemed to inhibit the extraction of some compounds from the wood, leading to an unusual balance of flavor compounds overall in the whiskey. Um, when they tested both samples back on Earth, yes, they drank the space whiskey, uh, the Earth sample smelled and tasted uh, like Ardbeg. Um, the space sample was basically totally different. And, okay, I'm going to quote the kind of extensive tasting notes from both samples because it's just super fascinating to me. Okay, so... Earth sample, aroma, very woody, hints of cedar, uh, sweet smoke and aged balsamic vinegar, hints of raisins, treacle, toffee, uh, vanilla and burnt oranges. Taste, dry palate, woody balsamic flavors, sweet smoke and clove oil, a distant fruitiness, prunes, dates, uh, some charcoal and antiseptic notes. The aftertaste is long lingering and typically Ardbeg with flavors of gentle smoke, briarwood, tar and some sweet creamy fudge. Mm. Sounds lovely. Um, from the ISS sample. Aroma. Intense and rounded with notes of antiseptic smoke, rubber, smoked fish, and a curious perfumed note like a cassis or violet. Powerful woody notes, hints of graphite and some vanilla. This then leads into very earthy soil notes, a savory, beefy aroma, and then hints of rum and raisin-flavored ice cream. Taste. A very focused flavor profile with smoked fruits, prunes, raisins, sugared plums, and cherries, earthy peat smoke, peppermint, aniseed, cinnamon, and smoked bacon or hickory smoked ham. The aftertaste is pungent, intense, and long, with hints of wood, antiseptic lozenges, and rubbery smoke.
1: Rubbery smoke.
0: So, fish. I, I mean, that's a lot of word salad, but like, but they were just distinctly different, and I think that's great. Yeah. Oh, space whiskey science. <laughs> That's some fascinating science right there. Yeah. Ah, oh, more, more research is clearly necessary. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one, one study with, with rats from 2011 suggested that a compound founded red wines, um, resveratrol could help astronauts stave off the, the muscle waste that happens without rigorous exercise in low gravity in environments. Um, so maybe in the future with longer space missions, bringing along a little bit of wine wouldn't be considered superfluous. Let us all forget about supplements. Yeah. Yeah. Forget about those things. But, hey, speaking of the future. Let's talk about the future. Yes.
1: So, now that NASA and other space traveling entities are planning missions with even longer durations, like, um, I don't know, mission to Mars, mm. one of the main goals is to take the current 18-month shelf life of foods and extend it to five years. Whew. Yeah, one option that NASA is looking at would have crew members building a hydroponic growth lab and growing fresh produce inside. This would be a solution for menu fatigue, which on a year plus long mission becomes a real concern. Mm-hmm. Cooking in space, however, hmm, really difficult, if not impossible thanks to that whole gravity thing along with a host of energy and space mm-hmm. considerations,
0: like like area space not space. <laughs> space. Yeah. yeah, oh, I didn't even think about that. <laughs>
1: The journey to Mars would take about two and a half years, by the way, and require somewhere around 12 tons of food. Oh my goodness. Yes.
0: People but, eat, f- man, that's crazy. Okay.
1: Yep. Potentially sent to Mars separately before the human crew takes off. Ah. Mm hmm. Um, a four month experiment conducted in 2013 examined the implications and limitations of astronauts cooking their own food. The stipulations were, among the six crew members, food could only be cooked on certain days, only shelf-stable products like honey or rice could be used, (laughs) and only a limited amount of energy expended on things like a hot plate. All the participants preferred days when they cooked something— it's they said it allowed for creativity and social bonding. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm.
0: A few projects have been looking into 3D printing as a potential solution to cooking in space. Uh, the, the basic idea is that you could use good old tubes of, of food stuff as ingredients and that uh, that the printer could make those into different dishes. Uh, we'll have to do a whole episode about, about 3D food printing sometime. Yes. It's pretty great.
1: I'm so on board with that. Yeah. In 2015, red romaine lettuce became the first crop grown and eaten in space. Three crew members toasted their lettuce after dipping the pieces in olive oil. And lettuce vinegar. cheers. I know. And they they were quite satisfied with the taste. I do remember when this happened. Yeah. It being in the news. Longer missions also expound on the nutrient deficiency problem, like shrinking bones and squashed eyeballs. I didn't look into that, but I saw it, and I it scared me.
0: Oh, yeah. My- microgravity does things to your eyeballs. I don't want squashed eyeballs. I don't want like astronauts getting that. That just sounds terrible. No, 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 no one, no one deserves a squashed eyeball. <laughs> Um, if there's if there's anything we've learned from Game of Thrones, uh, uh, by by the way, um, if you are interested in the kind of history part of all of this, there's a really terrific textbook called The Astronaut's Cookbook that was co-written by um, by that guy I quoted earlier about the about the sherry uh-huh. um, uh, who who worked in NASA's space food program for thirty years. So he has a lot of stories in there. Look it up, check it out. And other than that. That wraps up our episode on space food. Yeah, that was a crash course. Mhm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that brings us to listener mail. Yeah. Yes.
1: So the first one comes from Drew who wrote in about another exploding foodstuff. Oh, yes. So many beer. If you ever do an episode on beer or home brewing your own beer, just realize that fermenting is a very dangerous process. I learned home brewing from a friend who got started about six months before I did, and we have been competing with each other ever (laughs) since. My first big brew at home was also my most dangerous. I did everything properly, and I put a special blow off valve to release the CO2 that builds up with the yeast as it eats the malt, sugars, and poops out CO2 and alcohol. Side note, I always love saying that alcohol is yeast poop. I made a very strong beer and feel, filled my carboy pretty full. I figured the blow off valve would be sufficient, but unfortunately, oh. I would soon find out it wasn't. That night, I, the night I brewed my first or second beer, I put it to rest in my closet, and went to bed. As I was lying and trying to sleep, I heard a very strange sound. Huh. I heard a big thunk and what appeared to be a pop. At first, I didn't think much about it, but I had a dreaded feeling. I got out of bed and checked on my beer and discovered that it had blown up and beer splattered all over my closet. I proceeded to take the carboy out and clean everything up. Knowing that natural yeast and bacteria was highly likely to be entering the carboy, I capped it off with the blow valve again and put it in my kitchen and proceeded to clean up my closet. Within a minute of getting started on cleaning, I heard a dreaded and salt beer all over my kitchen. Oh, no. This happened another two times with me panicking over what to do in the middle of the night. I ended up giving up for the night and just leaving it open to the elements. Oh, I spent a few hours cleaning my kitchen and closet before going to sleep and then fixing my beer in the morning. Thankfully, it turned out okay, huh. but definitely tasted different. I <laughs> hope you enjoyed this explosion story and a cautionary tale for anyone wishing to get into brewing beer. I did solve the problem pretty quickly after that, and I have no problems with exploding beers since. Whew. Yeah, so cautionary tale indeed for anyone looking to homebrew.
0: Yeah. Um, I'd like to try it one day, but... Uh, oh, I've always been kind of terrified. I, I guess, I guess we should. Yeah, I mean for science, I've got a basement for the show. Okay, well there we go. Excellent. Okay. Uh, also, um, Alexa wrote in about an alcohol omission from our oyster episode. Uh, saying my favorite shot to introduce my friends to is an oyster shooter. Typically, it is vodka, although at some Mexican restaurants they default to tequila. Bloody Mary mix. Also loved that episode. Thank you. Uh, and a medium shell oyster balanced on the rim of the shot glass. You then plop the oyster into the shot glass, swirl it up, and kick it back. It's a delicious way to enjoy an oyster. And since you had episodes on two of the three ingredients, I thought I would write to you. I've only ever had them in Boston, so I'm not sure if this is just a Boston thing, just a New England thing, or if other areas of the country have also indulged in this shot. Hopefully you guys can try it sometime and let me know if you enjoy them as much as I do. I have seen these on menus
1: around here, not too, too often.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like I've heard of the concept.
1: Yes. But I, I've never had one. I've never had one either. I've definitely, there are places around here that do it, um, but it's, I doubt it's as common probably as it
0: is yeah. in New England. Places I, where oysters are fresher. Yes. Yeah. I would love to try it though. Yeah. Okay. New project.
1: We have so many, every episode ends with all this great homework. Yeah. <laughs>
0: This is the best homework.
1: I know. So thank you to both of them for writing in to us. Mm -hmm. If you would like to write to us, we have an email. It is foodstuff at howstuffworks.com.
0: We are also on social media. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at foodstuff. HSW stands for How Stuff Works. And on Instagram at foodstuff. Further thanks to our audio producer, Alex Williams. Yeah. Giving us a thumbs up. Mm -hmm. Got his name first right on the first try. Um, we hope to hear from you uh, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel.
1: Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies.